welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 64 for October 2016. I'm your co-host, the first, Quinn Dunkey. With me as always is co-host, the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Yay, I'm here. I'm all right. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, today's a good good day, bad day thing, but uh, we're recording another episode, so it's probably um, on balance uh, be- uh, more more good than bad. Excellent. Well, we'll focus on the retro stuff, which is hopefully all good. Yeah, I think so. I uh, I saw uh, Chris Torrance this morning. Um, you, mm. That's a name you probably recognize from the Assembly yeah. Lines book reprint. He's also got mm-hmm. that YouTube series of vodcasts, which is pretty awesome. You should check that out. And uh, I just dumped a whole bunch of Apple IIEs and two GSs on him. So good luck, Chris. Ah, that's where those were going. I yes. saw the photos on uh, <laughs> Facebook. Yeah, nice. Yeah, we. Um, I, I, I've been looking around my loft here lately, and I just see these piles of Apple twos that, um, you know, I hate throwing away anything with that, that rainbow Apple logo on it. But, you know, at the same time, you reach that age where you realize you're probably not going to have time to get to everything that you want to get to in life. And maybe it's time to, to, uh, thin the stacks a little bit and give, and give mm-hmm. them uh, a new home to people who can use and enjoy them because right now they were just collecting dust and not doing anyone any good. So enjoy, Chris. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I don't think I realized quite how many Apple IIs you have. That was a <laughs> pretty big stack there if you're just thinning a little bit and you still had that many to give away. Yeah, that was about a third of the 2GSs and a third of the 2Es. Wow. I still got to find more homes for those things. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Chris Torrance is a friend of the show and a friend of uh, both your hosts as a result of Kansas Best. So hopefully he'll go and do some cool videos and other stuff with those. Yeah. So how are you, Quinn? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I have to say one last thing on that subject that uh, I was slightly annoyed that uh, in your photo on Facebook, uh, you had all of the duo discs stacked on their respective two E's, which was very nice. And one of them was backwards and it drove me crazy. Oh, no. Yeah. So next time you're piling, next time you're piling computers in your car, if you could just make sure to arrange them properly, that that would really help me out. I'll absolutely do that. Yes. So I'll I'll leave a little note, a handwritten note for Quinn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Now you're just going to leave them all in crazy angles. You're going to have like <laughs> duo discs on the GSs and just <laughs> just to troll me. Bungee corded to the roof of my car and on the <laughs> <That's>, hood. <laughs> dragon behind the car from the power cord. Yeah. <laughs> like like some weirdly weirdly hunted electronic animal or something. <laughs> That's right. It is Colorado, <laughs> you know. GS thrown over your hood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Good time. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. Uh, back to your question. Uh, I guess the uh, only thing I have to uh, intro uh, retro-wise is uh, we said on the last show that we uh, thought we'd found uh, an incompatibility between the Megabeep 2C Plus ROM that I was selling at Kansas Fest and may sell again if I can find the time. Uh, it seemed to be incompatible with John Brooks's new release of Protoss 2.4. Uh, the good news is we found that not to be the case. So uh, if anyone was reading the show notes last month uh, or following me on Twitter, then you know that. Uh, it looks like uh, it was reported by uh, listener James, and uh, it looks like uh, he may have just gotten a bad uh, ROM. So, uh, uh. you know, I tested all the and yeah, I tested all the ROMs I sold in my personal 2C plus, but I didn't you know test every single uh, piece of software or anything like that because <laughs> that would have uh, taken forever. So, you know, I did some basic boot tests and stuff on each one, but uh, 
Uh, apparently, I didn't uh, I didn't boot uh, DOS 2.4, uh, or even some other versions of ProDOS. He said didn't work as well. So it seems pretty clear that was a, a bad ROM. So I uh, sent him the code uh, and offered a replacement for that. Great. Um, yeah. So good news for anyone else who is considering the Mega Beep uh, and or is concerned that they won't be able to run ProDOS. Hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, many thanks to to John and James for uh, helping us uh, debug that problem. Uh, I know that uh, John did a whole bunch of work trying to figure out, you know, where it was crashing because uh, James is the only person who could reproduce it. So John did a bunch of special builds with debug codes and then trying to figure out where it was dying in the in the startup process. It was uh, pretty cool. That's one of the great things about the hobby community. I mean, as, as small as it is, the, the creators actually have time to sit down and work out like a problem that one or two people have, you know, mm-hmm. try, try, yeah. try and get Apple to even acknowledge that, you know, your mail app is crashing or something these days, right? Yeah, yeah, John showed remarkable uh, dedication to uh, fixing this problem, which was really cool. Nice. This is Mark Simonson, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. Uh, all right. Uh, so I guess uh, we don't exactly have a full interview this month, but uh, speaking of John Brooks, uh, we have uh, an excerpt uh, from an interview that he did with uh, Ken Gagney of Juiced GS fame. And uh, what's... Uh, funny about this is that this is the second uh, third-party interview we've run uh, with John Brooks <laughs> on the show. Uh, maybe one of these days we'll get him on the show in person, and then uh, it will be uh, the, uh, the hat trick of, of, of interviews for the uh, Canadians in the audience. But uh, yeah, shall we just uh, roll right on into that interview? Sure. Now, this is, uh, again, if you want the whole interview, you got to read uh, the Juice GS um issue that uh, it's in, but this is just a little 10-minute segment to whet your appetite, and if you like it, and I hope you do, uh, go subscribe to Juice GS because it's a great magazine. Yeah, good stuff. This is Ken Gagney with Juice GS, the last remaining print publication dedicated to the Apple II. Today is Sunday, September 18th, 2016, just three days after the release of ProDOS version 2.4, the first update to this 8-bit operating system for the Apple II since 1993. Today I'm chatting with John Brooks, President and CTO of Blue Shift Inc., veteran Apple II programmer, first-time Kansas Fest attendee in 2016, and developer of the recent release of version 2.4 of ProDOS. Hi, John. Hi, Ken. How are you doing? Good. How are you today? Good. ProDOS version 2.4 just came out this month. I have a ton of questions all about uh, your motivation, the technicalities behind it. Let me start by asking, the Apple IIgs just turned 30 years old this month, September 2016, and you've been programming for it almost since day one with releases such as The Hunt for Red October for Datasoft and Rastin for Taito. Those are Apple IIgs games. Why are you now focusing on an 8-bit release? A couple reasons. Getting back into the Apple II uh, uh, kind of computer programming and just user scene uh, last year, I saw there was a, a lot of amazing software to pull things off of floppies. And I have a massive collection of floppies that have been in a storage unit for the last you know, 20-some years, uh, and I wanted to recover it. And, uh, and so kind of getting up to speed with what the, uh, the current situation was, was with these floppies, some of which are losing data kind of rapidly, it kind of surprised me to realize that um, there were two versions of ProDOS uh, that people were using. Uh, one, you know, version 2 of ProDOS would only work on the newer Apple IIs, and the um, the version 1.x of ProDOS 1.9 is the most recent. That would only work on the older 6502-based computers. And so anyone who was trying to release software to help people move 
data from the old failing floppies onto modern systems and kind of preserve it for the next generation or for history. It was kind of an awkward situation of having multiple OSs for multiple generations of Apple II computers. Uh, so I, I thought that's something that really should be improved if possible. How long have you been working on the ProDOS update? Uh, I think I started it in August. Uh, it was really prompted by um, a post on uh, the uh, uh, CompSys Apple II where um, another developer made a dual boot option where you could uh, have both ProDOS 1.9 and ProDOS 2.03 both on the same disk, and then you could pick which one you wanted to boot. And so while that was good, I was like, well, it still is kind of painful to have to, you know, have both of them on your disk because particularly for five and a quarter inch floppies, you know, you've only got uh, 140K. And so doubling the size of the OS on that isn't uh, isn't really ideal. Uh, and, and really, this is something that almost all the code is common between 1.9 and 2. It's just a few really nice features from ProDOS 2, uh, which we'd like to be able to use on older machines. And, um, and, and the reason that ProDOS 2 doesn't work on the older machines is that it's using this handful of of newer opcodes for newer CPUs. That's the primary reason. And so if we could just fix that, then we could make a universal ProDOS that um, any anyone making new recovery software or new retro Apple II programs could use as one version of ProDOS that would boot on all Apple IIs. So that's kind of the impetus. There are so many new features and improvements and fixes in this release. I'm curious to know what feature of ProDOS version 2.4 are you the most proud of? Well, um, so I I think the new program program launcher that what I call Bitsy Buy um, is the thing that I um, spent the most time on. Uh, myself and uh, and uh, Peter Furry, the uh, Cucumba, um, who's also got credit on it. That that was a real. Uh, it, it's some of the most torturously difficult code <laughs> I've written in my you know thirty some years of uh, programming, and and that's because we tried to pack a ton of features into only three hundred hex bytes. Uh, so there's a hard limit on how much memory. Is available for that um, that bytecode, the quit code. But I, you know, I really wanted to be able to select devices by slot using number keys, so you wouldn't have to tab around and tab one too many times and have to tab all the way around again. Uh, I wanted to really be able to handle directories that had lots of files in it because I have a CFFA card, you know, with lots of Apple II programs on a on a USB stick, and um, it's not just ten files in a directory. I mean, if I've got a hundred files in there. Having to scroll through them all takes a long time. So, you know, being able to type the first letter of the file name and have it jump right to it, you know, those are all things that um, you know that I really wanted for myself. And I, and I think that kind of goes to the the whole origin spirit of the Apple II, which is, hey, the machine can do whatever you want, make it do something that's that is what you want, and it will likely be useful to others as well. And so, it's really a community effort of lots of people making things that are cool for themselves and sharing. Um, and so, I you know wanted to do the same thing. So you've released version 2.4 of ProDOS. There are so many other programs that were developed to work with earlier versions. Is there the possibility that your update will break existing ProDOS programs, such as AppleWorks? Um, it, I guess it's possible. Uh, I mean, that, that is one of the difficulties in trying to, that was one of the difficulties I ran into trying to create ProDOS was how do I test it? Because, you know, I'm not a big company with a large, um, you know, developer or testing group. Um, so it, uh, I started testing in uh, mid-August and then, of course, released it mid-September. So uh, I went through about a month of testing and it went through about uh, nine releases, nine or ten releases to the testing, uh, you know, to, the, to, to the user community. But yeah, it, really, once it was released, and it, it certainly saw more use in a broader audience. And you know, within a couple of days, 
the issue of compatibility with uh, non-Apple machines, and there was a couple of bugs in places. So, um, but that also, again, seems to be kind of the modern uh, era of development in many ways as well, which is put something out there, let the community use it how they use it, and then uh, that will really inform what improvements and fixes need to be made. So there's a high degree of confidence that this will not break existing programs. Does Prodos 2.4 enable the creation of new programs that would not be backward compatible, that would not run on 203? Um, a little bit. So there's uh, the some of the real tiny programs, specifically the, 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 the mini BAS, the mini basic um, launcher. Um, it fits in one block of memory because it's expecting to be called from, from BitsyBuy. And and, um, and one of the reasons that it can fit in one block is, is because Bitsy Buy um, doesn't pass the entire long path name of the file that's being launched um, to, the, uh, to, the, to the next program. Instead, it only passes just the file name up to 15 characters, and the whole rest of the path it sets in Prodos with a set prefix. So any program being launched by Bitsy Buy can... Uh, reduce the buffer size for the next file to use from 65 bytes down to 16 bytes. And that savings is uh, pretty significant when you're trying to fit in one block which only has 512 bytes. You know, being able to save that 40 or 50 bytes is a big deal. Um, but other than that, no, there's, there's really not um, not anything uh, fundamental that, uh, that 2.4 enables. Uh, there's been some discussion on the CompSys Apple II group about... Um, uh, making some changes that would be more significant, such as being able to dynamically load device drivers or use um, the language card memory in a more generic fashion. But those are all things that um, you know could potentially impact uh, compatibility. And so I really just wanted to get a universal Protoss out there uh, first. And then, again, once people have it and use it, we could, we could have community-wide discussions about uh, what would the next step that would be most valuable to people, what that would look like. This release was timed to coincide with the 30th anniversary of the 2GS. Is that correct? Yeah, again, I was working on it in August, and I realized, well, you know, September 15th is going to be the 2GS uh, 30th anniversary, um, and it needs testing for several weeks. So those, it just seemed like the stars aligned uh, on that one in many ways. What would you say is the connection between the release of an 8-bit OS and the release of a 16-bit computer? Well, ironically, uh, there's a lot of code in ProDOS that is GS-specific. Um, it patches uh, the toolbox, the GS toolbox in ROM. It patches some bugs. It adds features so that when it's called by the Finder, it can launch uh, an 8-bit program for the Finder and then quit back to the Finder. Um, so... Uh, and, and a fair amount of stuff that I added to 2.4 was specifically for um, 2GS users and kind of usability in mind. Um, so like one of the options I have is that when you launch an 8-bit program from the Finder, and of course the Finder will start by launching ProDOS in, in a special mode so that ProDOS knows it's, it's being asked to run 8-bit programs on behalf of the Finder. Um, when it's launched in that mode, if you hold down the option key, then, um, then when the 8-bit program quits, it will not quit all the way back to the Finder. It will stay in, in BitsyBuy, and then BitsyBuy can use BitsyBoot to quit back to the Finder whenever the user is ready. And so the reason that's useful is because I often find that when I am in GSOS in the Finder and I run something in 8-bit, where I often don't want to run just one program, I may want to run two or three programs, or I may want to run the same program two or three times using you know resets and reboots and that kind of thing. And so uh, in the past, if you run an 8-bit program from the Finder and then it and then that 8-bit program crashes, you have to reboot the whole machine, relaunch GSOS. It takes a long time. 
And so one of the, the very useful changes that, that I've found for myself personally with, with Protoss 2.4 is, is the ability to reboot Protoss 2.4 without um, destroying the dormant hibernating state of, of the Finder and GSOS um, so that I can run multiple games, I can pull iterations of 8-bit uh, development and testing, and then if I need to go back to the Finder or to a 16-bit program, I can just you know, use Bitsy Boot to go all the, all the way back to the Finder. Um, so it, it's enabled different um, usage patterns than existed private, uh, previously for 2GS owners. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for this insight into ProDOS 8, John. I know we have so much more we could talk about. In fact, this interview lasted a half an hour, and what we just played here is 10 minutes. The transcript for the entire interview can be found in the September 2016 issue of JuiceGS, available for purchase online at www.juiced.gs. My thanks to OpenApple for running this excerpt of our interview. John, I've created a special URL just to find your program. It is prodos8.com. That will redirect to the Call Apple page that lists your program. In the meantime, can you also remind our listeners where to find you online? And then I'm at uh, Twitter at... uh at jbrooksbsi. I can be reached there and happy to talk to people and users and developers alike. Great. Thank you so much for your time, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Ken. All right. Well, that was uh, that was fun. And like I said, the uh, whole thing is available in, uh, I think it's the latest issue uh, of Juice.js. Um, you can find the right one uh, on the, on the webpage. We'll have a link to, uh, in the show notes. And yeah, like it, it's funny that <laughs> he's been on the show more times than most of our guests, because most of them are just, you know, one-time appearances, and, and neither of us have talked to him in person. <laughs> that's right. Well, except at K-Fest, but yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, uh, yeah, uh, thanks again to Ken for letting us run that here on the show. So uh, in, in lieu of a longer interview, we've got uh, some news to talk about, and uh, we also have a cool new segment coming up. Uh, I'm not going to spoil that, uh, but uh, let's go through some news first, shall we? It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. So this first item, uh, I think we could have actually talked about it last month, but uh, it fell through the cracks, and uh, I'm sad about that because it's, it's really, really, utterly, fantastically amazing. Uh, which, you know, not to oversell it, but uh, <laughs> this is an item that I really, really like. Uh, so a friend of the show, Brian Peachy, who we, whom we've spoken to or spoken of much here on the show he's uh he's written some games in the apple II, including uh recently one called retro fever that we've talked about and uh, he's done lots of great uh, youtube videos uh on apple II and other retro computing stuff we'll certainly link to his youtube channel and uh the the one that really jumped out here is his latest video he has acquired a tiger learning computer and i had no idea what this thing was or what the apple II connection with it was uh so, but what it was was uh, it was by VTech and uh, or Tiger, I guess, depending on how you uh, view these corporate structures. And it was one of these like plastic um, sort of kids computers, and it had sort of like a it looked sort of like a laptop, but it wasn't really a laptop. There wasn't a screen under the you know under the lid, and had these sort of fake fake cartridge things. And uh, it just seems like one of these kind of schlocky Toys R Us type you know toy computer things. Uh, but under the hood, it's actually an Apple II, and it's actually running uh, ProDOS, and it actually boots, and you can see it boot uh, as an Apple II. Um, and then it's got a bunch of software on these like cartridge things. And apparently they licensed this technology, and this is really, really late. Do you remember the day on this mic? It was like 2010 or something, like it was in, or 2002 or something. It was really, really late. 
Well beyond when anyone should have been looking to buy a new Apple II off the shelf, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think Brian correctly characterizes this as the last Apple II ever sold. Uh, so, and in fact, on the box, he's got pictures of the box and stuff in his video, and it, it brags about, you know, contains Apple technology and, and all this. So they were even trumpeting the fact that it was an Apple II under the hood. Uh, so this this is a bizarre and fascinating artifact, apparently extremely rare. I've never seen this or heard of this, and he managed to find one new in box, which is amazing. Uh, had you heard of this thing, Mike? I have, yeah. Uh, they, uh, in fact, JuiceGS I think has had done a couple of articles on it over the years. Mm. Um, okay. Again, again, like you said, uh, very difficult to find. I'm sure they didn't sell all that well, and the ones that did sell probably didn't last very long. Um, it has a very sort of that that rugged but very simple look that that companies like Kenner used to give their toys to appeal to kids and to appeal to parents who wanted something simple for the kids to learn on, which of course, you know, that's what this was for. But it also gives it, you know, when I see it anyway, to me, that's a very disposable look. You know, you use it for a couple of years, it's in, it goes in the trash and you never think about it again. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there's uh, over on JuiceGS, uh, there is a, a gallery of the Tiger Learning Computer. It was profiled in the uh, December 2011 issue, and they do mention that this thing came out in 96. Oh, 96. Oh, okay. I thought it was newer than that. Okay, cool. Still pretty, pretty remarkable thing. Yeah, because the 2E stopped production, what, 93? Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So three years after that, they licensed this thing. Very cool. Wow, that uh, yeah. So I'm I'm really glad that glad that Brian uh, brought that up because uh, yeah, I guess if you haven't read older issues of GSGS like me, you might uh, never have heard of this thing. Pretty cool. And uh, you should, if you have a chance, definitely look at the gallery. There's a close up of like the picture. The the laptop itself looks like one of those early um, sort of dark gray uh, power books, you know, with the <laughs> rounded front and the and the little um, the the power book had the the little marble for the mouse pointer, this does not, but very similar in style. Um, and in fact, there's a close up of the, um, you know, the open Apple key even has the Apple logo and, but instead it just says player one on it. And for it, it's obviously very dedicated to games and there are no, the, when you lift the lid, the, the screen is not, there's no screen there. Instead it's, it has these little, um, cushions, um, for mounting the game cartridges. And then the idea is you plug this into a television and play it that way. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that a neat thing. Yeah, it's it, the industrial design of it looks like they're clearly going for that kind of uh, late 90s, uh, you know, futuristic stylish look, but also still trying to appeal to kids. So they're kind of walking that line between like schlocky kid computer and like charcoal power book high tech of the late 90s kind of look. So it's kind of neat. All right. Well, uh, and yeah, I guess the, I, if I had one of these things, I would be sorely tempted to try and hack it into like <laughs> connecting to a floppy drive and so on. But of course again, you would. Yeah. But then again, it's like if I had one of these, they're so rare that oh, it would be ashamed to sort of uh, <laughs> take it apart. But uh, gosh, it would be sorely tempting to try and figure out how to connect a disk two controller to it. And, boot load runner. Yep. Sounds like a great HackFest project. <laughs> it would be. Uh, just go ahead and uh, send that over, Brian, and I'll get right on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'll never be the same, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I make... Uh, I can't be held responsible for uh, the condition you receive it back in. Well, come on. It's not like he's going to sell it. 
Yeah, all right, um, moving right along. This next item is yours, Mike, so I'm going to leave it in your capable hands. Right, so this is a page that I found that was actually published late last year. But it's called The Life of Steve Jobs in Images, and it features a series of um, black and white, very highly stylized drawings of Jobs' life, and, and most of them are just jobs and we don't care about that but there's some some interesting ones at the in the early days of Apple and at Atari like there's a picture of Waz selling his uh, calculator Jobs selling his microbus um and then there's you know a drawing of them and Mike Markula at the West Coast Computer Fair in 1977 oddly with a bunch of Apple IIc computers so um yeah not very accurate historically but kind of a fun look through for 30 seconds or so <laughs> cool yeah, I heard, I heard something, something, Steve Jobs, something, something. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, moving right along. Uh, this next item, uh, our first hardware uh, piece of the episode, is a pretty exciting one. Uh, you know, many of us are privileged to own uh, Plamen of A2 Heaven's uh, Apple IIc VGA adapter. Uh, it's this awesome little beige box. You plug it into the video expansion port on the back of your 2 c You plug in a VGA monitor, and it just works, and it's amazing, and it's awesome, and I love it. Uh, until uh, now, other Apple II users have not had that luxury. So Plamen has released the Apple II VGA Scaler, which I'm not sure why it's called Scaler exactly, but uh, it appears to be just a full-blown VGA adapter for your uh, regular Apple II with slots, and it uh, it sits in a slot, and it has a VGA port on it, and uh, you just plug in a monitor and go. Uh, I guess the only downside is it does take up slot, but uh, you know that's somewhat unavoidable, I guess, for the best possible quality. You want to try and just convert composite to VGA. That's always going to be uh, kind of ugly. Uh, so this thing uh, also has the same uh, optional, all the different modes that uh, the 2C1 does, you know, the scan lines and the amber and the green and, uh, and all that kind of thing. Uh, it looks like a really cool product. This is for the 8-bits only, mind you. This is not for the 2GS. Uh, it's a whole other ball of wax, but uh, this looks like a, a pretty sweet uh, little card. Available for both NTSC and PAL systems, so that, that's nice mm. uh, if you're nice. if you're dealing with European systems. Uh, Eighty-five U.S. dollars, and there's a nice write-up over on Call Apple uh, where where uh, Javier takes you through the ins and outs of installing and using um, this card. And yeah, it, it looks pretty gorgeous. The, the output's very nice. Mm, very cool indeed. Yeah, I'm uh, really glad that uh, someone is just making simple solutions like this to our video problems. You know, there's been a lot of sort of kind of possible solutions to this for so many years, you know, various arcade converter boards and janky things off eBay that sort of work sometimes. And, and uh, so yeah, Plum is just buying, uh, is just selling things that just work, uh, which is fantastic. And didn't, weren't, weren't we getting emails not too long ago from somebody who wanted to be able to switch between amber and green on one monitor? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We talked about that last two months. Um, Looks like yeah. That might be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, this would definitely do the job. Uh, that uh, that listener wanted specifically something that would, that would convert the composite signal, but if they're willing to accept the VGA output, then this would certainly do the job. Because, yeah, this has the, the amber and the green options on it. So, uh, yeah, if you're still listening after uh, our uh, bungling of that uh, <laughs> particular question uh, two months in a row, then uh, hopefully this, uh, yeah, this might be the answer you're looking for. We bungled so many things. Yeah, I've lost track. We have a whole bungling department now. <laughs> We've had to schedule bungling meetings, and we have bungling TPS reports, and yeah, we've, we've had to practice. Yeah, we've had to formalize our bungling. It's just it's become so dense. We re-record entire segments when we get them right the first time. 
that's right. Yeah, yeah. Take take that step and uh, and think about it. The fact that we <laughs> we re-record this whole show sometimes and still <laughs> we, we add errors. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, uh, this next item. Yeah. So once again, we've been uh, scooped by the Retro Computing Roundtable, uh, as as is tradition here on the show. Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's this, uh, what we, I guess what we're assuming is a Japanese company or something. Um, this, com- uh, this company called 8BitDo, which I think is a pun on Nintendo. Uh, it's sort of a, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but uh, 8BitDo uh, has been making these Bluetooth uh, game controllers. Uh, for a while now and for various purposes on Kickstarter. And uh, they've gone ahead and made one dedicated to the Apple II. So uh, what's cool about this is that it, uh, so it's a sort of a traditional console game controller, dual sticks, you know, dual dual analog sticks, four buttons on the side, shoulder buttons, yada, yada. Uh, And the controller itself is Bluetooth. Uh, And they've gone and stylized this one with uh, the rainbow stripes on it, which is kind of nice. And it actually has a sort of a miniature Apple II dock that you can stand it in or sit it in, which is kind of cool. So, you know, this is making the rounds. It's all over Kickstarter and whatnot. Uh, But they've completely buried the lead here. Um, The real uh, exciting part of this is that part of the Kickstarter is that you can buy a, uh, it comes with, or optionally, you can get a dongle that plugs into your 2C or 2GS joystick port uh, and is the Bluetooth receiver for this thing, or presumably possibly other Bluetooth controllers. So it converts, you know, Bluetooth uh, joystick signals uh, from, I guess, this thing, and I don't know if it works with other controllers, but uh, to the uh, varying you know, resistances that the uh, Apple II expects to see on the joystick port. So that's pretty fantastic. Um, and I think a lot of people are just going to want to order that. I believe on the Kickstarter, you can uh, just, uh, you can commit to just ordering that piece, I believe. Uh, they don't seem to have a package that's all the bits, but they have various combinations of the bits. So uh, that's pretty exciting, and uh, it's not clear if there will be or can be a version for the uh, internal game ports on other Apple IIs, uh, but I mean, it would be trivial to convert that. You know, if you got the, the dongle, it would be easy enough to wire up a, you know, a dip socket with the right signals um, if you got this thing. So uh, that's pretty exciting. Um, is this something that you would buy, Mike? I would buy the dongle. Um, I'm not at all excited about the controller, but that's mm-hmm. because it's a thumb controller and thumb controllers mm. blow or, well, <laughs> I blow it. I suck at <laughs> thumb controllers or something. I don't know. I hate that kind of Nintendo controller I, I, because it's more than just a stick and two buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my coordination just isn't there. But I, I, I agree with you that the Bluetooth thing is awesome. Uh, there have been a couple of devices that had uh, or have um, the the wireless connectivity. But, you know, I don't think, I think all of those so far have been slot-based, um, except maybe um, Nishida Radio. I, I'm not sure about those products, but um, this this is great if you just have a 2C and you want to plug something into the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I would necessarily use the controller part of this because, yeah, I mean, two analog sticks and 37 buttons or whatever consoles <laughs> have these days is kind of pointless on an Apple II, obviously. Uh, but uh, yeah, the dongle is cool. Uh, so, you know, we, as we've talked about on the show here, uh, I, I made my own gamepad for the Apple II a while back, and uh, I can link to the blog posts where I talk about how to do that. And my experience was, you know, it, like it's enjoyable and it's compact, so I like, uh, you know, it's handy to take to KFS and stuff. But, you know, if I'm just sitting at home playing games, I actually do prefer, you know, my CH Products uh, joystick. 
and I think a lot of it is, yeah, like you say, the, you know, the dexterity, I guess the skill set is different, I think, with a gamepad than it is with a, uh, an old-fashioned analog joystick, and the games are largely tuned for that style of Apple II joysticks. So, you know, the analog thumbsticks have a much smaller dynamic range uh, than a big analog joystick does, so, you know, you can't get quite the same feel, and a lot of games are harder to control. It works really well for games that were basically digital uh, in their controls, like Load Runner, where it's, you know, just basically translating the left and right motion into digital inputs. Uh, but for, like, driving games and stuff, I find the game pad actually is much harder to use than a joystick because just the analog tuning isn't right for it. Hmm. So, uh, anyway, this is, uh, this is a very neat thing, and uh, I kind of want to buy one and just take apart the dongle and just see how it works and see what... <laughs> how it could be maybe adapted to other things. Um, be cool to do other Bluetooth things with uh, with an Apple II. Definitely. Uh, nine days left to go on the Kickstarter. Uh, the original goal was $16,111, and I think that that sort of odd uh, number is because they were asking for Hong Kong dollars. In it. Um, but they've already exceeded that. They're up to, as we record this, 20,527 US dollars. Again, though, there's, um, nine days to go. Hopefully we'll get this up before it ends so you can get in on this. Um, and, uh, it looks like it's, they're actually going to be shipping, looking to ship in January of 2017. So cool. Yeah, and I think this is a pretty safe bet. You know, they've, like I say, they've been making these controllers already for other systems and for other niches, so it's not a new thing. And, uh, you know, this thing has been making the rounds like crazy. I think we're the last people to report on this one, so uh, it's safe to say that this is this is a thing that's happening. Uh, all right. Uh, we're the trailing edge here, folks. <laughs> that's right. Yes, we're dedicated to bringing you all the news in the Apple II eventually. All right, we're the trailing edge of the trailing edge. <laughs> that's right. Okay, uh, moving right along. Mike, uh, talk to me about the uh, Dynacomp power supply. Uh, Andrew Rowan uh, brings us news that uh, the 240-volt Dynacomp power supply unit has been dissected and diagrammed out. There's a circuit diagram. This is this was done by a couple of Aussies, uh, Dean Dean Claxon and Mark Cummings. Uh, and one of the reasons that they did this was because there's a uh, there does seem to be a lack of any kind of official documentation on power supply circuits, and especially the ones that that appear in the uh, a lot of the Apple II models. This particular one was the one the Dynacomp 240 that showed up in the Platinum 2E, and uh, of course the 240 volt is is for um, for that area of the world, but uh, they're sing they're assuming that the, the the 110 is probably very similar, and that the resources that they're making available. Uh, through these diagrams and circuits will be great for troubleshooting the U.S. models as well. So help me out here. Uh, w what is a Dynacomp power supply? Is that like one of the models of standard ones or something? Yeah, that's this is the one that was uh, typically seen in the Platinum Apple IIe. Mm, okay. So the, the IIe that uh, had the uh, keypad and, and all the, the latest updates to the motherboard. And uh, again, it, it seems like for, for as, as, as much as um, historians like to tout Apple's um, contributions to switching power supplies, especially with the Apple II and things like that. Very little of that beyond the basics has been diagrammed and is easily available to hobbyists today. Cool. Yeah. Do you happen to know is Henry Gor is Henry Corbis documenting any of that stuff? Because he's you know they've reverse engineered a lot of these power supplies in order to make these uh, replacement universal ones. Is that stuff online anywhere? They they've been good about sharing all their stuff. Well, I don't know if he worked on this specific project. I don't see his name here, but I think if you go over to, so if you go to, um, 
reactivemicro.com forward slash downloads. Uh, there's a public folder there that has a lot of uh, Henry's resources that he's collected, especially as, as it has to do with his uh, cloning and and reverse engineering efforts. And there's definitely some power supply stuff going on there. So you can check that. I don't know if this specific model is in there or not, but uh, certainly useful resources for anyone who wants to know, um, you know, on the, on the component level, how this stuff works. Cool. Yeah. These old, uh, these old Apple II supplies are actually a good learning experience for switching power supplies in general. Cause yeah, as you alluded to earlier, uh, Apple was a very early adopter of switching power supplies, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, a lot of these machines still had linear power supplies with, great big honking transformers in them and, you know, noisy as all get out. But, uh, you know, Apple, Apple was quick to, to get on the switching uh, bandwagon. And, uh, you know, so they're, they are good examples of early consumer grade designs for switching power supplies. So by modern standards, you know, they're quite simple uh, to understand. And uh, yeah, kind of a nice uh, reference design if you're curious uh, about how switching power supplies work. Well, I think just in general, isn't it common knowledge or common wisdom these days to, you know, when you get one of these machines, it's probably a good idea to go through and recap stuff. And uh, I know power supplies, certainly on the Apple III and some of these others, uh, that's a good place to start. And having these resources and these guides handy, uh, I, f- I found it very useful for, for making sure that, that I didn't, uh, making sure that I, uh, I got everything and I did it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's, there are a couple schools of thought on on that. I've always been sort of the the, the yeah recap it uh, if it's old school. But there, are, interestingly, there are some people that say you shouldn't actually do that unless it's exhibiting problems, just because uh, uh, the modern capacitors aren't exactly the same as old ones. You know, internal resistances now are lower; they're more efficient, uh, which seems like a good thing. Except that these the circuits were designed for the properties of those old capacitors, so. If you put modern replacements, don't behave quite exactly the same way. So I guess you could potentially create problems uh, by doing that. But uh, yeah, I don't know if there's uh, an easy answer as to whether to replace them or not. Hmm. Well, um, unfortunately, uh, now that Reactive Micro or Ultimate Micro, I guess, uh, sells that 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 universal power supply kit, it's easier than ever to go in there and experiment. And you know, you can buy one of these new ones and pull the old one out and play with it. And if you screw it up, it's it's not gonna. You can still use your machine. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, the real answer is if you are concerned about your power supply, uh, buy Henry's replacement (laughs) and it's been engineered properly and it will just work. And then you can keep your old one for historical value or if you want to play with it or whatever, you've still got it. So yeah, for sure. Um, I guess, you know, I could jump in here with a mini tech segment if people are curious about what switching power supplies are. Uh, You know, we throw that term around. So switching power supply, uh, the, the reason it's called that is because it switches the power basically on and off really fast. Uh, So, you know, the uh, the job of power supply is to take the 120 or 240 volt uh, mains power supply and convert it down to the voltages that a computer needs, you know, which are really small, 12 volts, 5 volts, you know, minus 5 volts, that sort of thing. And the sort of naive way to do that is to just have a big transformer that, uh, you know, has coils of two different sizes on either side and the 120, let's say, goes in one side. And if you have, you know, one-tenth as many coils on the other side, then you get, you know, 1.2 volts or sorry, 12 volts on the other side. Um, and then you can, you know, break it down from there. Um, and then you, you know, you rectify it to make it into DC and all that. Uh, and that's basically what, uh, old linear power supplies were. Um, the problem with that is that uh, it requires very big, heavy transformers to do that. And they also, you know, they, they have a lot of other issues as well. They need, a, you know, big capacitors and some, some other uh, things. But, uh, so you'll see this on, uh, 
uh, like if older uh, other older machines. We've talked about this in the past. Some of the old, uh, some of the Apple II clones had linear power supplies in them, for example. And we've talked about how you open up and you see these massive transformers in there, uh, and that's uh, that's why. And you also see this in like uh, arcade games, for example. Uh, by and large, all had linear power supplies in them, so they have these like forty pound transformers sitting in the bottom of them, uh, and that's that's why. So uh, you know, really uh, modern like modern pinball machines, uh, they've moved to switching supplies, but. Uh, um, so the, uh, the advantage of, uh, there were some advantages to linear supplies, you know, they, they made, uh, cleaner power, uh, without much effort, uh, than switching supplies do. So, uh, what a switching supply does is it, instead of using the a big transformer to, to step down the voltage, it actually just uses, uh, transistors essentially to switch the power on and off really fast. So if you, uh, effectively creating a smaller duty cycle. So if you, switch the power off, uh, off and on at say half the duty cycle, then you, uh, you, you know, you get these sort of spikes, uh, and, but on, on average, then the voltage is half of what it was. So the, you know, the circuit just sort of sees the average of all of this, you know, crazy spiking that you're doing. And you can kind of set that average wherever you want, uh, by just switching the power on and off really, really fast. Uh, so the nice thing about that is it's extremely efficient. Uh, the downside is, you know, that switching back and forth is very noisy. So you do have to, uh, do a lot of uh, cleanup and smoothing and stuff, which is part of why switching power supplies are much, much more complicated than uh, linear ones are. But uh, they're much, much smaller and much more efficient and, uh, you know, less stress on all the components and all that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, that's the gist of it. Switching power supplies, modern ones are much more sophisticated than that. There's a lot of other things going on. Uh, if you've ever cracked open the power supply on your MacBook Pro or something, you'll see uh, a whole bunch of fancy stuff going on in there. Uh, tiny little microchips doing all sorts of things. But, uh uh, anyway, that's the gist of it. So uh, that's uh, switching power supply 101, if anyone was curious. Awesome. All right. So we talked last month about the Apple III homebrew project that Chris uh, Zuhar, sorry, Chris, if I've butchered your last name, uh, we talked about how he was uh, he had an old Apple III that he was breaking down and he was going to make a homebrew computer out of. Uh, well, he looks like he's getting started on that and uh, he's got a blog, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's just an intro at this point, but he talks about what he's hoping to do with the project because we guilted him into it on the show. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I will uh, definitely be following that for sure. Right into the RSS feed. Your fault, Quinn. <laughs> oh, if only I had that sort of influence on the world. <laughs> Things would be a lot different, let me tell you. Uh, it, it looks like a great project and hopefully, and we hope that it doesn't become too much, you know, as we, as we mentioned last time, it's, uh, pretty common knowledge that, uh, within the hobby that the Apple III is a, an extremely complicated machine. And, and so Chris, uh, good luck with that. I think you might need it. <laughs> yeah. I hope he goes the route of just, uh, making something out of these parts as opposed to trying to actually clone the Apple III, which, uh, uh, which would be a, a challenge for sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of retro challenges, huh? Yeah, I see what I did there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Smooth, baby. Mm, yeah, and then I blew it by calling attention to it. That's right. Uh, Is the retro joke funny if you have to explain it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Let's keep describing it and see what happens. Sounds good to me. I feel, I feel like, like Family Guy, if we keep talking about it long enough, it might get funny again. I, I don't know. Let's... Every single time. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, retro Challenge 2016. Uh, is this this has got to be winter, I guess, is underway, yes? 
Yeah, so they used to call them the winter warm-ups, and then the mm. main main one was would happen after the first of the year. I think they've just kind of given up on calling it the warm-ups since they were getting as much participation at this time of year as they were later on. So now it's just the Retro Challenge 2016 slash 10 because it's in October, and uh, – that's happening now, and if you um, if you want to follow along, you can head over to their blog. We'll have the link in links in the show notes to a description of all the projects. And this year, it's going to be judged by uh, RCR's own Michael Mulhern, who is an Apple II fan. So, if you're an Apple II person and you're doing Apple II projects, now's probably the year if you want the <laughs> judging weighted in your favor. Mm, definitely, definitely. Well, the the other guy is a, I think he's a TRS eighty guy, so you know his life is empty and boring and and drab anyway. So the mm. Apple II stuff, he'll, he'll go for that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although you might not want to put any color in your project because <laughs> the TRS eighty judge might just be alarmed and and taken aback. And that's right. And, uh, might, and make sure it's know. not compatible with anything and has no software. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and and no sound. Or if you have sound, make sure it only comes out of the cassette port. Because <laughs> again, you don't want to alarm the terrified TRS eighty judge. <laughs> we kid, we kid. We love all the computers. We love you. <laughs> okay. Oh, we're going to get mail. <laughs> uh, moving right along. A uh, friend of the show, Egan Data Jerk Ford, uh, has done some work on Disk Server. Talk to me about this, Mike. Yeah, so he initially posted the Apple II Disk Server about four and a half years ago and really hasn't done anything with it since then. And He's had some requests to update the essentials and uh, went and did exactly that and did some bug fixes and things. Uh, so there's, um, he did publish an article last year on the inner workings of, of uh, the disk and the game servers and how this all works together. Um, we'll have a link to that article in the show notes. But uh, he's asking people to go out there and uh, check it out and uh, see if there are any problems. Uh, with his new setup. Um, one of the great things about this is that I liked was, was that, um, he's got the, uh, all these cassettes as sound waves and you can just plug them right into your cassette port, uh, the, your audio output on your computer right into to the, uh, cassette ports on your Apple II and play it out as a tape from the web. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's a, an underutilized, I think, feature of the Apple II that it has a cassette port and that you can literally just play sound files out of your iPod or whatever into it and load them as cassette tapes. Uh, you know, we've seen it a little bit with, uh, uh, well, yeah, like the disk server um, or um, uh, Teza, uh, uh, who makes the YouTube videos about his retro computer collection. Uh, he does, uh, Terry Stewart, uh, that's the name I was searching for. Uh, he does, he does that a lot. He's always demonstrating any computer that has a cassette port. Uh, he'll use that to load software on his uh, YouTube channel. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's such an easy, you know, low barrier to entry way to get software into a retro computer from the internet. Uh, I guess I'm surprised more people don't do it. Well, even, uh, Wendell Sander, uh, who he famously still has an Apple one that works, uh, has a, he has a webpage showing how he uses his iPad, i iPod to play uh, wave files uh, directly out to the cassette on his Apple One the software. Very cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's a neat way to do it. I think. All right. Uh, let's see. So Andrew Wells is apparently rewriting Ciderpress in C Sharp. Now Ciderpress is something we've talked about a lot here on the show. It's a graphical uh, utility on Windows for you know manipulating disk images and uh, it even does some other stuff like you can view AppleWorks files in it and some stuff like that. And uh, so now is he the original author here, Mike, or is he just rewriting it? No, this is a rewrite. Um, it was originally written by, uh, I think, Andy Fadden was mm. his name. And uh, for a while it was a shareware program and cost like 
20 bucks or something. And then he uh, made it open source and kind of said, I, I've done what I can do on this. So please community continue to work on it. And it sat for, it sat there for a while because this is um, basically a windows based program and it worked fine on windows XP. Well, when that went away and everybody switched over to seven, uh, there were some bugs that popped up. And since then the community has slowly been chipping away at, some of that. There's been updates to fix bugs, and now it looks like it's being rewritten in uh, a newer language. This would be what? C note? Is that the word? Uh, C sharp. Gotcha. Yep. So this will be in C sharp. Now, currently, the, the current version I know works perfectly well on, in, in Wine uh, under macOS, but I don't know if this is going to affect that or not. Yeah, that's a good question. It should remain compatible, I think. So, you know, I'm, I'm assuming he's he's going to be using the, the .NET stack as well, uh, which under C Sharp is quite a nice environment. Uh, the nice thing about this is it does open the door a crack to cross-platform uh, compatibility. Uh, so C Sharp is managed code, so it runs at a higher level than... You know, it's not quite like, it's, it's a bit like Java in the sense that, you know, how Java is running on a virtual machine. It's not quite that, but C-sharp kind of runs in a, in a protected environment, and uh, it is possible to emulate that environment on other platforms. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, mobile games are actually written in C-sharp. In fact, that's, that's what we do at work, is we write all of our software in C-sharp, and all of our servers and all of our client code that runs on all different uh, phones and tablets is all written in C-sharp. And, uh, you know, you can just have kind of a thin managed code layer uh, underneath that, uh, that protects you from the hardware and, uh, and away you go. So, uh, yeah, it's conceivable once this project is done that uh, we could get a native-ish uh, Mac version out of it as well, which uh, is uh, pretty cool. Neat. Uh, all right. So this next one, uh, I also encountered this one, and I'm glad that it made it into the <laughs> show notes because this is a weird one, uh, pretty random. Uh, uh, go ahead, Mike. I'm going to let you take this one. All right. So uh, a number of years ago, um, Steve Wyrick, who does the awesome Apple2History.org, and he had the uh, Simplicity and Sophistication book about the history of the Apple II that was published. He posted uh, some pictures that somebody had made of, of the, that uh, Apple One, the wooden Apple One case that's the famous one you see a lot of pictures of that's in the uh, Smithsonian. And it's kind of that dark wood and somebody took, you know, a, a Dremel and carved out <laughs> Apple One very shakily in the backboard yeah. <laughs> and all that. Uh, he posted – somebody made a cake, a birthday cake of that. And, and that was pretty awesome. And then uh, more recently, I found someone who had made a cake of not just like a single layer thing, but a, an entire Apple II with like the, the CPU and the disk drives and the monitor on top of it, just very elaborate thing. So, and that was pretty awesome to see as well. But now we've got this thing that's, it's apparently this, um, Bob Mintier posted this. Thank you, Bob, for sharing this. Uh, he saw this at the Texas State Fair. They have this thing called the construction um competition where everything that you build must be made with canned food items and somebody built an apple too I, it's amazing just the photo of this thing and there's a little uh picture of the you know um oregon trail death only um you died of hunger not dysentery i think dysentery would have been funnier but i don't know if you want that associated <laughs> with food so uh anyway uh he's got this over um it's in the apple II enthusiasts a Facebook group and we'll, we'll definitely post it. I, these cans, I can't see what they are. They look like, I can't tell how big this is. So mm -hmm. there's, I mean, there's not a lot of scale here, but that if those are like, say like cans of corn that you would hold in your hand, then this thing is massive. 
Yeah, that's the impression I got is that it's quite large because, yeah, the the sort of the resolution of your structure is set by the size of the can. And this thing is has a quite a lot of detail in it. So I think it must be quite, quite large. And uh, it, he's cleverly chosen uh, canned food products with labels that have the right mix of colors. So he's kind of created additional detail by placing the right colored labels near each other and so on uh, to get sort of sub can resolution. And it's, uh, it's, it's really, really well done. Uh, so that, yeah, we will link to the pictures of this thing. And uh, I insist that everyone go look at it. Yep. And of course, as Jake Harvey uh, comments, it needs RetroBright. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that building things out of canned food cans was a thing, uh, but I'm really glad it is because this is hilarious. Only in Texas. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of like the dying of hunger because it's sort of yeah, kind of <laughs> well, call out to the sense, con- yeah. construction material there. Uh, but uh, all right, uh, let's see. Moving right along, we've got uh, a vintage computer BBS list has been updated. Uh, I I got nothing here. Mike, help me out. So this is a, a text-based list that's been, uh, I think, maintained for quite a while. And every now and then a, a board will come up or go down and this list gets updated. It's a very, very short list these days. And I think almost all of them are Telnet only. It doesn't look like, yeah, maybe a couple of are, uh, a couple are dial-up. But there are four total Apple II uh, BBSs listed on here. Uh, DJ's Place, which is G- GBBS Pro. Uh, Dura Europause, uh, which is a modified GBBS Pro. RMAC dial number 34 is a diverse dial board. And the Sanctum BBS, which also runs on GBBS Pro. So if you're still looking for that old-fashioned BBS interface experience, uh, there are a few Apple II-based boards. If you're just looking for um, general retro computing, they've got some Amiga boards, Atari, Commodore. And, and I imagine at this point, these nobody's going to kick you off for, for being an Apple II fan. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing about these sort of rebooted vintage BBSs is that they recreate one important aspect of the BBS experience, and that's Which is? waiting and trying forever to get onto them. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are so few of them, and uh, there are now sort of, you think about these BBSs used to run in some town or neighborhood in one geographical area, and people only wanted to dial locally, so they were, you know, the pool of people trying to get into them was fairly small, you know, a couple hundred people at, at any given time trying to get into one. Well, now you've got, you know, every vintage BBS user all around the internet trying to get into this thing. And now there's only four of them instead of the thousands that there used to be. So uh, it's arguably much harder to get onto these things <laughs> than it used to be and uh, made much worse by, you know, they all effectively get, uh, as we used to say, slash dotted, where every time one of these things gets posted on Facebook group or whatever, everyone, of course, immediately goes in and tries to use it. Uh, and, you know, you can't get in. So uh, I guess uh, I would say look at this list and then uh, wait for a while uh, <laughs> and then hope no one has talked about it recently on any vintage forums anywhere. And then maybe you'll be able to get in. Uh, but it is pretty cool. I do like these things a lot. The um, the the uh, one cutoff for the hardware on on uh, the on their end is that the, it either has to run on hardware built prior to 1993, or the operating system must be originally coded prior to 1993 under emulation. So they really want to ensure that you get that old timey feel. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I think all the Apple ones I've seen are running on real hardware. Uh, people post pictures of them, and yeah, they just have like a Raspberry Pi or something serving as a a Telnet bridge. But uh, yeah, the BBS itself is running on real hardware, real floppy disks, the whole nine yards, which is awesome. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I actually had a GBBS Pro uh, BBS of my own for a little while. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned it on the show yet, but I recently did a blog post where I went through a bunch of my old uh, floppy disks from my youth and uh, dug up a whole bunch of like uh, pro- early programming projects from when my age was measured in single digits and things like that. And uh, one of the things I dug up was my brief attempt at uh, a GBBS-based uh, BBS. And uh, it was languishing on, uh, you know, five or six floppies. And uh, I think it's safe to say it should uh, remain there because it was pretty terrible. <laughs> I, <can't, laughs> I couldn't actually even get it to boot. Clearly, it was a work in progress and I, I never operated it. But uh, yeah, I was, like many of us, super, super fascinated by BBSs and definitely wanted to run one. But I didn't have my own phone line or anything. So I don't know what I thought I was going to do with this thing after I built it. But uh, yeah, it was neat to find it anyway. It would be cool and all of your friends would carry you around on their shoulders and go, yay, Quinn, yay, Quinn. Yes, I'm sure that was the dream. <laughs> <laughs> I know what will make me cool. I'll Quinn's start a savior. BBS. Savior, BBS. <laughs> yes, that'll make them stop beating That's me up at right. school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the teenage nerd logic. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, moving right along. Uh, oh, I guess we could have grouped our A2 Heaven hardware items together. That would have been smart. Oh, well. Um, but nope, we do not organize anything on the show uh, for that folksy fireside chat feel. Um, that or we're lazy. One of, one of those two things is definitely the reason that we do these in random order. Sure. Yep. Uh, so, Plowman of A2 Heaven is uh, working on something in his, uh, in his Bulgarian Batcave. And uh, he's asking to borrow a 2C plus for a project. And I guess all I have to say about this is anyone who's anywhere in the vicinity, uh, Western Europe, uh, I guess, or anywhere in Europe, perhaps, uh, please, uh, please lend him your 2C plus because whatever he builds is going to be amazing. And uh, the 2C plus is still slightly underserved in some of this uh, hardware expansion stuff. So I hope it's perhaps some sort of memory card or internal, you know, mocking board or something. Maybe he's doing something internal that he needs to test it on 2C+, or perhaps it's something smart port related because the 2C+, has some weird little differences in the smart port. Uh, something like that, I hope, is the case. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it does. It's unfortunate because it, it is a little bit, I think, um, probably out of the range of practicality for most people here in the United States to, to get him one. So if you're in Europe and maybe France or something like that, fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. And they are uncommon enough that I think people are a little wary of just kind of sending one overseas uh, on a lark. So uh, hopefully there's someone geographically close to him that uh, that can lend him one. Not that he's not trustworthy or anything, but you know, the, the packages change hands a lot and they get banged up and fall off boats and stuff. So yeah, yeah, I would not not want to risk my own TC plus just that the yeah through eight, eighteen post offices and airplanes and heaven knows what else uh, would happen to it. So, uh, but yeah, I do wish him the best because I really want to see whatever he produces, and I'm sure he will get my money for whatever it is. Oh yeah, and let's see. Oh, the Goldbergs uh, are back on the air, and uh, this is this is fantastic. Uh, I actually came across <laughs> this because uh, Bill Budge, I think it was. Uh, oh no, it was uh, Richard Garriott uh, retweeted this, which uh, I loved. Uh, so yeah, the Goldbergs uh, got a, uh, an Apple II computer lab in in their school, and uh, the references are insane. Uh, these writers did their homework. Uh, no, don't, don't worry folks. No, no commentary this time from us, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, uh, yeah, I don't know about you, Quinn, but I know I whiled away many lunch hours in the Apple II computer lab at my high school. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm going to go ahead and include some of the audio, um, from, from the show here. And 
I hope that we're small enough to fly under the very <laughs> litigious Disney lawyer radar, whatever you want to call it, um, because Disney owns ABC, which is the channel that broadcasts the Goldbergs. But um, here that is. Here is that. As my dad got the win, I was still a lone loser without a table. My only choice was to accept my fate of eating alone under the bleachers. That is, until I stumbled upon my salvation. Holy motherboard. The high school computer lab. It had six state-of-the-art Apple IIs, each with double floppy drives and a dot matrix printer that could ink a whopping six lines per minute on that weird paper where you rip off the sides. We're allowed to be in here. Okay. Mr. Glasscott says we can stay the whole lunch period as long as we don't make crumbs, which is why I bring a thermos of soup every day. Cool. Oh, is that Prince of Persia? We've got it all. Castle Wolfenstein, Load Runner, Choplifter, and Ultima parts one, two, three, and four. You have part four? That's the ultimate Ultima. You know your stuff. I'm Adam, by the way. I'm Mike Levy. This is also Mike Levy. You guys have the same name? Yeah, but Mike Z is painfully shy, so it's not much of an issue. I feel your pain. There's a senior also named Adam Goldberg. He's not happy to have me around. <laughs> right on. I'm actually pretty good at Oregon Trail. So, um, yeah, definitely I, the Goldbergs that started out for me anyway, is sort of a not funny. Why am I watching this kind of show? And has really turned into, to a hilarious collection of, of eighties retro, um, feels and, and memories and nostalgia. So the, the, the Apple two references, notwithstanding, you should be watching the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, these writers are doing their homework. No question. I mean, they like, yeah, they, they nail what it was like to have an Apple II computer lab in your junior high school and, you know, be one of a couple of kids who, who sort of got it and, and what we were doing in those labs and everything. I mean, yeah, they just nailed it. So much like, you know, yeah, like last time we talked about this uh, here on the show and we did our little uh, DVD commentary of an episode, uh, very similar to that, you know, in fact, this is even better. I mean, at one point, oh, well, I guess we played the clip, but um, yeah, they, he literally rattles off a list of games and they get they get it all right. So those are those are the ones you would list, you know. If you remember last time, they they mentioned that Ultima 4 and like didn't have a save function. I think everybody mm-hmm. went, what? And, <laughs> but they, it seems like they paid attention and good for the writers for making cheese the drive a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, good, uh, good on them for for doing the, doing their homework. And yeah, and, and like you said, it's it's not just the Apple II stuff. You know, all of the '80s nostalgia. They're they are applying that same attention to detail uh, everywhere. The clothes, the hair, the the cars. So it's uh, it's definitely a fun watch just for the the cultural uh, nostalgia of it all. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Mike, you want to do a quick eBay segment? Sure. Let's let's jump over to that first, and then we'll we'll move on to other things. Steve Jobs, look what we found on eBay. All right, so we don't talk about eBay on this show, as you know, but uh, this will be brief. Uh, What do we got here, Mike? A homebrew portable 2GS. Yeah, that's exactly what we have here. A (laughs) portable homebrew Apple 2GS. uh, there's, this is not the first time somebody's done something like this. Obviously, uh, Ben Hex, 
amazing Apple IIGS laptop that he put out back in 2008. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. You can go look it down on his blog. Uh, Tony Diaz before that um, put a 2GS into a, a tower, and I think it sort of made that a little bit portable. But the difference between that and what we're looking at now is that this is something you can actually buy. Now, there are only like four days and 18 hours left as we're recording this, so I don't know if we'll get this up in time for you to bid on it. It's currently at 201 euros, um, which is about $221. And uh, it looks like this thing is located where in Italy and they do ship worldwide, but uh, it doesn't say that it's free shipping. So I imagine if you're here in the States, it might be a little bit pricey to get this over to you. Mm, yeah, it's a shame. This thing is very cool though. Yeah. In fact, we, yeah, of course we had Ben Heck here on the show to talk about his 2GS uh, laptop. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I love the people are still trying this. This is great. The 2GS just seems like a really great candidate for this. You know, it's uh, it's got such great hardware kind of self-contained uh, within it. And uh, it's, yeah, it's begging to be carted around. And it's even uh, rack mountable, it looks like. It's still got the, the handles on it. So you can just slide that right in there, your 19-inch Dell, Dell rack. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's really what uh, what our server rack at work is missing is a 2GS, I think. <laughs> says it uh, comes with a hard metal case uh, and a 6-inch monochrome CRT, so you won't get color. <laughs> um, they said it does include the keyboard. It's not in the photo, but it uh, works and is in good cosmetic condition so uh yeah this thing's pretty cool and if you happen to win this uh come talk to us about it because we'd love to hear more yeah and either way we'll link to the listing in the show notes so you can go back and look at the pictures uh, after the fact yeah there's definitely there's there's some nice close-ups of the internals and the work that they've done to sort of reconfigure and realign everything the back is interesting it's got all kinds of uh, test equipment ports so it looks like maybe they were planning to use this in a lab or something um but uh yeah cool yeah, strange beast. All right, so moving along, uh, we want to do one more segment here. Uh, this month, we're going to try something new. Uh, this was Mike's idea, and I think it was great. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna do magazine flashbacks, and uh, <laughs> what we're gonna do is we're going to uh, Mike and I are gonna read uh, a copy of or an issue of an old magazine, and then we're gonna kind of revisit it here on the show and uh, yeah, share some thoughts on it. Now, don't worry, this won't be nearly as bo- as boring as our commentary of um, the Goldbergs. Um, <laughs> That's right. And and this, hopefully, I, I hope this will work because uh, I, this idea is shamelessly ripped off from uh, from the retro MacCast where they're going through every issue of a Mac Addict uh, mm. right now, and they did Macworld as well. Um, but we're going to go through, uh, we're going to start with Soft Talk. We thought about doing Nibble, but, um, and all of those have been, all of the Nibbles have been scanned as well, but you have to buy that. And mm-hmm. we kind of figured that this is available out on the web and everybody, you can just read along if you want to. So, uh, we'll get started with, uh, issue, uh, volume one, number one of, uh, Soft Talk magazine from September 1980. Take us away, Quinn. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, this was a great read. You know, I'd never read the very first issue of Soft Talk, so it was really fun to do. First thing that strikes you, of course, is the length. Uh, it's 32 pages, which, you know, could qualify as a beefy newsletter. Uh, but, uh, but the other thing <laughs> that strikes, that yeah, well, but the other thing that strikes me is despite its, its, uh, sveltness early on, uh, the production value was there right away. You know, uh, it's filled, they managed to fill all the advertising space and, you know, it's professionally laid out and professional typography. I mean, you know, they weren't messing around here. This is a professional publication right out of the gate. It's not like some magazines that kind of started as user, user group things or whatever and kind of evolved. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the uh, opening editorial by Margot Comstock, who was the uh, keynote speaker at Kansas Fest a couple of years ago, uh, is excellent. And uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the 
lines that she has in, in the editorial that I really liked is, uh, you know, she says that one of the reasons you might be reading this magazine is because, quote, uh, you've chosen Apple for your computer. And I think that's a that's a really telling kind of turn of phrase because it, yeah. uh, you know, it captures what was a really big deal at the time, uh, which is that there were like 20 home computers that you could buy, right? I mean, there was four or five major ones, but there were a lot of choices. And this was a big commitment. I mean, you know, if you do the exchange rate or the uh, uh, inflation calculations, you know, on Apple II at, at retail was, you know, somewhere north of, of five or $6,000 in a very basic configuration. Uh, in today's dollars. So you know, this was a huge investment. And, you know, you're committing to this thing for hopefully a really long time. And in the case of the Apple II, potentially, t- you know, 10, 10 years or more. So, you know, you had to think very carefully about that choice. And it mattered a great deal which one you chose. Uh, it's not like nowadays where it's like, okay, your choice is Mac or PC. And honestly, it doesn't really matter that much which one you choose because they're both, you know, you can run VMs for one or the other if you need a little bit of software that you can't get. And most software runs on both anyway. And it, it honestly doesn't matter that much. And more and more, everything's being done on the web anyway. So platform matters so much less nowadays than it used to, despite all of the angry forum threads that you might read to the <laughs> contrary. But uh it mattered tremendously back then because most software did not come out for all machines. In fact, most of it only came out for one or maybe two of them. Uh, you know, games were often ported to, you know, unless you had a Commodore 64, you couldn't really count on a game being available for your machine. Uh, you were kind of lucky if it got ported. So, uh, you know, it was, yeah, it was a really big decision. And it was kind of nice to have this uh, opening editorial that just said, you know, you're our people. <laughs> you know, you've chosen Apple. We chose Apple. We all agree this was the right choice. So let's talk about it. Well, and even even if you had a version of your game f- for your platform that was that had the same title or the same mechanics as what appeared on the Commodore sixty four, they probably didn't look the same. They probably didn't sound the same, and they may not have even played the same. And one of the things that I really enjoyed looking at as I was reading through this was the ads because mm-hmm. it sort of says a lot about where the industry was at the time. And the mm-hmm. first ad that I saw was this Exacom's Imp2 printer, one line per second, <laughs> $895. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I'll, I'll talk more about the ads as we go through this, but uh, there was a feel to the whole thing. Um, like you said, very professional. And yet at the same time, there's uh, a, a little bit of a fanaticism there that kind of reminded me similarly of what you saw later on in Mac addict where, People were very dedicated and loved this platform, and it came through in the articles and 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 the the topics that they chose to talk about. And I think that's what made this kind of one of the top flight magazines of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the ads also really reflected the machine's strengths. You know, all these early ads—they're all productivity software for the most part, which. Uh, is really what the Apple II was good at. You know, it, again, back to that, the choice of the machine being so critical, it, it it said a lot about you and not in the modern sense of how, you know, your brand is whatever part reflects your personality, but it said a lot about what you wanted to do or what you thought you needed to do with a computer. And each machine was good at very different things. You know, the Apple II was really great at, you know, productivity software, spreadsheets were processing. Commodore 64 was really great at games. You know, the Atari was really great at being overlooked. You know, the, so each had their strengths and weaknesses. And uh, I think you, you see that reflected in the ads. 
Uh, they introduced a, a news talk segment, um, which kind of went through bits of bites of, of news items in the industry. And especially with the Apple II, I, I like the mention of the uh, move from uh, online systems, move from CME to Core's goal. <laughs> of course, everybody yeah. you know, immediately assumed, like when you say Sierra Online, if you know anything about it, you think of that mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, the icon that they chose for the logo and that they were from Core's Gold in the mountainous area, but they started out in CME. Mm-hmm. And I had even forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah, I love that too. The little announcement that they'd moved their global headquarters, <laughs> which, uh, you know, at the time, I guess it was three people or something. But uh, yeah, we should say that this issue of SoftDocs really early. Uh, what's the date? It's 1980, right? Yeah, September sure of 80. Yeah, so this this is very, very early. Uh, so all, all of the ads are all small companies. You know, they're all just someone in their garage uh, and they've made up some name prologue you know, technology systems or whatever, but it's one person. You, you can tell it's one person by the ads, you know, it's, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. clip art and stuff stuck together and no screenshots of anything, just like a description of this is a high res game where you shoot <laughs> lasers or whatever, and just trying to sell you their software, it's basically sight unseen for $30. It's, it's kind of adorable. Yeah, I well, and and what's great about Soft Talk, especially, is it it provides a a great snapshot of where they were in the industry at the time. You know, um, not just the Apple II, but uh, the the microcomputer industry in general was you know mail order people, and and for the Apple II, it was um, like you said spreadsheets and and edutainment games and and little like muse was was still selling stuff on cassette and uh apple computer they even mentioned this was sending representatives to vendor fairs at that time mm-hmm. you know so uh, which god that would never happen now um and but it was also at a time when things were growing like crazy there's a, a mention of uh dc hayes the company that, that made those modems um announcing you know they threefold growth in just in 12 months so it was growing like crazy, and and um, there was a mention of Mountain Hardware. It became Mountain Computer, um, and on the same page, uh, there was an ad. Cavalry Systems sold this a VCR interface peripheral to allow your Apple II to search videos by frame number, segment, or image name. Just four hundred and ninety-five dollars. <laughs> wow! Yeah, with inflation, what is that? Uh, Fifteen hundred, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> That's a down payment on a house or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, and one of the other ads that really jumped out for me was the SSI ad, one of the few from sort of a larger software company, uh, Strategic Simulations uh, Incorporated, I think. And uh, they had an ad for some sort of um, tactical strategy game, you know, their their wheelhouse. And it didn't, uh, I mean, there was sort of a screenshot, but it was tiny. Like there, there was uh, the, only, the only image in the ad was tiny, tiny, tiny in the bottom of the center of the page. And then there's a full page ad and it's just a wall of text. Uh, which sort of tells you a lot about where, again, where the industry was, who the market was, like people wanted all of this, you know, information. Uh, you know, you would never see that in a modern, you know, gaming or computer magazine. It would just be all pictures, you know. Uh, so it's just a solid wall of text that I guess you're supposed to read. And uh, buried in there, uh, they, when they're talking about the system requirements, uh, they say that you need a, a, a mini floppy drive, a five and a quarter inch mini <laughs> floppy, which I liked. I liked that they had to specify mini. Uh, this still at this time, uh, I guess eight inch was still considered a plausible uh, storage medium for uh, for the time. So the five and a quarter inch were these crazy new tiny ones. Yeah, very strange. There was a profile of uh, Apple's newly hired manager John Couch. 
Uh, if you know that name, it's probably from the Lisa Project. He was mainly known for successfully keeping Steve Jobs away from Lisa, <laughs> um, and which you know diverted him to Macintosh. And of course, Jobs went on to kill the Lisa Project. And but he talks about profit centers and management by walking around and industry growth. And again, very uh, that sort of fresh face, uh, naive enthusiasm <laughs> that was that was all over the industry at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it seems like he was fairly new at, at Apple at the time, based on sort of the tone of this interview. Um, but uh, yeah, the whole management by walking around thing is kind of, kind of, yeah, kind of discredited now. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely the attitude of the time, I think. Uh, and it, yeah, the uh, the. Uh, the the uh, the theme of of the interview is this thing called datagramming that he's really excited about, and uh, he he keeps going on and on about. It. And there's several blurbs, there's several different contexts all throughout this issue about this quote datagramming. And aside, they never really explain very well what it is. Aside from it's clear he's really really trying to coin that as a term, uh, <laughs> like really working that. Uh, he throws it in six times to every sentence, but. Uh, as far as I can tell, what he's getting at is he wants a higher level programming languages for people so that people who aren't programmers can kind of build applications. And, uh, you know, he it, it's sort of funny. He you can tell again how early this is in the industry because he kind of uh, he go the example he cites is that his dad kept asking him to add features to this business analysis software that he had written for him on his Apple II. And, you know, he was frustrated by having to constantly go and add another feature, add another feature, because his dad couldn't just expand it on his own without being a programmer. So this datagramming was sort of his his holy grail solution to that. Uh, I think he was, first of all, sort of overlooking the potential of general purpose software. You know, I think, uh, you know, pretty soon general purpose business software would come along that could easily do anything that anyone wanted. Uh, so this wasn't really the issue, I think, that it seemed like. But I think he was also perhaps thinking a bit along the lines of graphical programming languages, things like HyperCard that would come along much later that kind of did allow sort of non-technical people to do some amount of kind of software development uh, in, a, in a friendlier way. And that's still a hot topic nowadays, uh, kind of non-programmer programming languages. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, in fact, uh, Bill Budge talked about that when we had him on the show. That's an area of interest for him as well. Uh, thing, tools that will let people build software that uh, uh, involving, you know, just connecting boxes on the screen or whatever kind of graphical tools for building new applications. So uh, that definitely seems like something that is coming along. And if that's what he meant by uh, datagramming, uh, then great. He was uh, a visionary and uh, just ahead of his time. But uh, yeah, I honestly couldn't tell exactly what he meant uh, in uh, in all these interviews. He just kind of went on and on about datagramming and how how great it was going to be. His enthusiasm reminded me a whole lot of um, um, Alex Baldwin's uh, Jack Donaghy Six Sigma enthusiasm on Thirty Rock. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but uh, yeah, clearly a bright guy, and uh, he did a lot very, of great stuff at Apple. So. Uh, and so the other big theme of this issue was the Star Wars connection, which was kind of neat. Um, I'm assuming they got like the proper, you know, permission to use all these images and stuff. Because, yeah, they have <laughs> a Star Wars image on the front page uh, or on the cover. And then there's a full screen piece of official Star Wars artwork inside the magazine as well. And then a couple of stories about how uh, staff uh, on the production uh, were using their Apple IIs, which was uh, pretty cool. Um so I guess uh, I had no idea about this, but I guess they used an Apple II to organize the special effects clips at ILM, uh, Industrial Light and Magic. They did all the special effects on Star Wars. Uh, so I guess uh, I, again, didn't know any of this, but if you 
uh, are doing special effects in an analog world, you know, the way they do that is by shooting many, many pieces of film that have different parts of the effect, and then they composite them all optically. And the challenge there is, you know, a given effect, one single shot might have, you know, 12 or 15 pieces of film in, uh, involved, and they all have to be uh, com composited with specific time indices, and it's difficult to keep track of all that. So uh, they, uh, one of the staffers at ILM wrote a custom Apple II program to track uh, all of these uh, edits and stuff. And uh, so the people doing the compositing could just type in, hey, I'm, I'm working on this such and such a shot, and I need this piece of film, and the program would tell them uh, where to uh, where to cut it in and where to composite it. So I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, kind of maybe a little bit of a stretch to like, let's 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 attach Apple to the to the Star Wars, <laughs> mm -hmm. but but I think they did a very good job. And there was um, a sidebar about uh, how um, uh, a film, one of a filmmaker. I don't know if he was involved with Star Wars or not, but talked uh, talked about how he uses the uses the Apple II to manage uh, talent contracts and, mm -hmm. and things like that, which is another innov innovative way that they were using the Apple II back then. There was an ad for The Wizard and the Princess from Online Systems. High-res adventure number two sell, sold for $32.95. Yep. Centauri Limited's Alpha Centauri organ keyboard uh, for the Apple II was $1,295. Oh. Um, <laughs> Mecca announced the Tape 2, a tape drive that behaves like a, a disc. For, uh, 500K for $499, <laughs> less than a dollar a K. <laughs> yeah, that thing That thing really interested me, the, the Tape 2. Uh, yeah, they, they claim it, it's random access and stores 500k or something, and it claims to work with all the normal random access basic commands, load, save, deload, etc. Uh, but there's no explanation of how it works, uh, and I'm pretty curious about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that would have been nice to see a larger ad or some sort of explanation, but yeah. um, and it may, I think it's one of those products that, you know, maybe sold 10 of them and you never heard from them again, or yeah. I don't know. Um, tabletop wargaming company Avalon Hill. Uh, made the leap into computer gaming. They de debuted five cassette war games for the Apple II through the newly created subsidiary Microcomputer Games Incorporated. Very generic. Uh, just $15 a cassette. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I think uh, if there's a if there's a consistent tone throughout this, it's aspirational. You know, there's oh, yeah. every single ad, every single article, every single interview, it's all uh, just sort of looking ahead to what everyone is just sure that these computers are going to do any day now. And, you know, like the star circling back to the Star Wars uh, interview, it was very much like that, where we just know that computers are going to be making movies any minute now. Uh, so let's find any connection that we currently have. And okay, someone's using an Apple II to do, you know, some basic, uh, what's basically a, a to-do list or something yeah, somewhere within the production. And there you go. See, it's computers are making movies and it's just a, you know, a couple more weeks or months here and, the, you know, that we'll be doing the whole movie on the, on the computer. We just, just, just know it, just hang in there. Uh, right. Of course, you know, it would be 30 years until that was true in any meaningful sense. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, just everybody was just so excited about the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, a company called Artsky, or maybe it's Artsy. I always assumed it was Artsky because there was this, for a while, there was this thing where everybody was trying to associate their product with the word ASCII. So you had Petsky mm -hmm. and Tasky and Artsky. They had uh, the Magic Window Word Processor, an early attempt at WYSIWYG for $99.95. Uh, online Systems Mystery House, High Res Adventure number one, sold for $24.95. And somebody named Lee Reynolds showed us how to use integer, the integer basic con command because <laughs> that's back when int basic was still a thing. 
<laughs> yeah, that's kind of an interesting article, actually. Uh, what he what he explains is how you can trick uh, AppleSoft into doing some types of commands that's, that it doesn't normally support. And the example he gives is a uh, an indirect list. So you know you can call list from within your own program, but it, but only if only with uh, hard coded line numbers. You can't uh, say list, you know, and then a, a variable name to start with a variable line number. And uh, so what he does is he does uh, he types in the command using print instead of list uh, so that the AppleSoft uh, interpreter will accept it and then shows you how to go into the monitor and change the token into a list token. And it oh, will, interesting. And, yeah. yeah, so and it will work because it's parsing the parameters independent uh, of, of the action token. So uh, it just it's just that the parser doesn't normally accept it. So, uh, yeah, kind of, it's kind of a neat trick. It's a very long article to get to that neat uh, little trick, but uh, it's, it was, yeah, it was kind of a, kind of a fun read. Uh, online systems offered paddle graphics, uh, a, uh, a set of software that allowed you to create art with your Apple paddle for $39.95 or the table graphics, uh, version, which allowed you to use your Apple graphics tablet for $49.95. Southwest data systems sold a works package for $34.95 called the correspondent, which, uh, included text processing database and a programming utility, sort of like an early Apple works, I guess. A company called Future World uh, sold XY Genesis, a collection of AppleSoft subroutines to add graphics to your programs for $74.95. And VisiCalc cost $150. Um, next up, we had SoftTalk's Trade Talk column. Did you read that, Quinn? Uh, I did a little bit, yeah. It was kind of neat uh, industry gossip kind of stuff. I like that they – they so they started it off by saying that um, they were lamenting how you know, good news doesn't sell and so you turn on the evening news and it's all bad news and they were hoping to correct that with this column and then immediately started off with this company. I don't know if this is true or not, but it almost sounds apocryphal. There's this company called PowerSoft, apparently an early pioneer in software publishing that had the memories of all of its computers destroyed by at once by a lightning strike, which also destroyed its phone and communication systems. Um, because I guess the spike got through a haze modem and into the building wiring and managed to kill its entire in inventory of diskettes and tapes for sale, as well as its set of business records that resided on floppy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds a little suspect to me. <laughs> sounds a bit urban legendy, <laughs> Or maybe at least overblown a little mm. bit. There was uh, an ad for something that would become ubiquitous, what my dad called snake oil. Uh, it was the FD-08, a floppy drive head cleaning kit from a company called FSI. There was no price listed, but if you called before 1 p.m. local time, your order would ship that day. <laughs> and no doubt that call went to someone's house. I'm sure it did, yeah. One of the things I like to do is look at all these ads and look at the addresses of these quote-unquote companies. Yeah. <laughs> and inevitably, <laughs> they were just a house in some suburb in Reseda right, right. or something. <laughs> Apartment 38B. <laughs> That's right. Yes, Garden level. <laughs> um, the Soft Talk noted that Business Week reported that Apple had sold 65,000 computers in 1979, and they expected to double that in 80. Uh, by comparison, Tandy sold 135,000, but business analysts analysts expected Apple to overtake Tandy by 82 because Tandy's growth was slowing to just 15 to 20% a year. I think most companies would kill for those numbers these days. <laughs> That's for sure. The Apple III gets a mention, pitting it against uh, the IBM's commanding 46% market share in the business market. And they mention John Marino, a biker, a bicyclist who uh, was attempting to break his own record of bicycling across the United States, 2,900 miles from LA to New York City. In 12 days, 3 hours, and 31 minutes, apparently he was uh, followed by a van which had an Apple II charting his course across 
charting his course and his menu, which only included foods lab tested to be non-toxic to his body, which I guess was what water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he did beat his record by a by a full day, so whatever it was, okay. it was working. Yeah, it's another strange claim. <laughs> <laughs> Hanna Barbera mentioned that they were going all digital for their cartoons from this point, and Disney, of course, stepped in and announced that they would never replace hand drawn animations with computers. <laughs> How's that working out for you guys? Yeah, yeah. again, that uh, bold statement about twenty five years too soon. <laughs> <laughs> Soft Talk notes that uh, the first computer camps were held over the, over the previous summer, including the California Computer Camp in Los Padres National Forest, north of Santa Barbara. It was a standard summer camp, including swimming, horseback riding, um, but it included one to two hours uh, daily of computer programming training, with the opportunity to buy one of the camp's computers at the end of the $795 two-week session. Hmm, that's kind of neat. I went to many, many computer camps as a youth, uh, although in, by, by the time they came around to me, they were, there was no horseback riding or anything. It was usually in a, a library, you know, utilities room or something like that, or a school's uh, gymnasium or something, and you just went there during the day, and, and they taught you stuff. Uh, but uh, I loved them. I thought that was a fantastic way to spend the summer. Well, I'm sure that at that point, kids like us were too pale and sickly to, like, <laughs> if you fall off a horse, you're going to break all your bones. <laughs> yeah, they knew better than to expose us to direct sunlight by that That's point. right, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a mention of Universal Studios using an Apple to track uh, extra dossiers for casting. And uh, they had developed an interface for a LaserDisc system whereby the agent, an agent could view talent clips uh, on a television screen simply by accessing the actor's dossier on the Apple II. And that's kind of cool. Hmm. Yeah, that is kind of neat. Um, and I think that kind of wraps it up. The back cover ad was for personal software's VisiCalc. And um, the other ad that caught my attention was IUS's um, this company called Information Unlimited Software sold Easy Writer, which I think was probably like playing off of Easy Writer movie name. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a word processor, Easy Mailer, which was a letter writer, and then Easy Mover, which was personal electronic mail, which I think maybe you should have called that Easy Mailer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And another common theme is with these pieces of software and companies is, is bad puns throughout. Like <laughs> everyone's trying to come up with a clever portmanteau or pun on some computery sounding word, which is pretty adorable. I, I like the fact that back then it was still – they had to use um, typewriter ball artwork just as a metaphor because people still associated that sort of work with typewriters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's that's about it for the September 1980 soft talk. Did uh, did we miss anything, Quinn? No, I think we uh, I think pretty much got it. Um, I, I know I know I talked a lot there. So <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, no, that's quite all right. Um, yeah, I would uh, you know we'll link to to this issue in the show notes and a nice nice very readable PDF and uh, it's a quick read. I mean, thirty two pages. You know, you can literally read it front to back, including all the ads. You know, in a in a Saturday morning. So uh, it's uh, it's a fun thing to do. You know, as as we get deeper into this, these issues are going to get much much longer. So we'll probably <laughs> uh, start just jumping around and calling out a few things in each one. But uh, oh, definitely, this yeah. one it was easy enough to go literally page by page. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and declare this a success. I had fun with it. Sounds mm -hmm. like you did too. Um, yeah. Let us uh, write, write in, let us know what you thought. And uh, if it's great and everybody loves it, then I'm going to go ahead and take credit for this idea. And if not, <laughs> then I'll blame the Retro MacCast guys. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Please do uh, write us at uh, feedback at open-apple.net and uh, let us know if you like the segment or if it was boring or if it was interesting. And, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe next time we want to just give people a heads up ahead of time so they can read read the issue uh, ahead of the episode and maybe follow along with us or I don't know people, people can uh, 
let us know what they think. I guess it's recorded so they can just see ahead of time and <laughs> read it before they listen. Or I don't know, I'm spitballing here. But uh, let us know what you think and if there's any changes to the uh, uh, segment that you might like. And, uh, you know, I, I know we have a lot of other segments that we haven't done in a while, uh, but we will get back to those here <laughs> pretty soon. Um, we've had a lot of long interviews lately and other, uh, other fun things like K-Fest happening. So we haven't done a lot of our traditional segments, but uh, always nice to have a new one to throw in the mix. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, of course, uh, don't forget that, uh, we do, uh, have a Patreon. And, and, uh, while this will, is free and always will be and is pretty much advertising free, except for this little bit right now. Um, <laughs> if you like what you hear and you feel like donating, we're happy to take that because the, the hosting costs aren't free. It's, it's not break the bank or anything like that, but it's not free and any contribution helps and we really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. We're strictly on the NPR model here where we occasionally beg you for money. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and otherwise it's uh it's all free uh all right well i think that uh wraps it up any closing thoughts mike um no thanks uh everybody for for listening again and um i i know that it's kind of a slow time of the apple II season i guess with uh christmas is still a few months away and and kansas fest is a couple of months behind us so um we'll uh we'll just keep doing this and i guess maybe next month we'll we'll take a look at uh, the the next issue of soft talk how's that sound yeah sounds good all right. Well, in the meantime, uh, we'll see you later, everybody. Bye, everyone. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net, where you can browse our extensive catalog of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions, or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. Just wait till they see my BBS. It's got a door game.